Nobody is perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. It does not matter who you are. Does not matter how long you've been in the Lord. Does not matter how much you study God's word. Does not matter how hard, hard you try not to. Nor does it matter how close to God you either are or want to be or try to be. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody. They don't want to. They don't try to. We as Christians are ashamed when we do because of what we just celebrated. We don't want to heap any more sin on the Lord, and so we try not to, but despite our best efforts, we still make mistakes. Hopefully a lot less than we used to, but we still do. And for anybody even to deny that truth, to fail to admit that, would be a sinful mistake of major proportions because the scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Take, for example, some of the greatest men in the Bible. Some of the greatest servants of the living God. If you had to make a who's who list, maybe like the one in, in Hebrews chapter 11, if you had to make a who's who list of some of the greatest, closest to God, servants of God that ever lived, they still made mistakes. Every last one of them. Consider with me, for example, Noah. Noah, that great preacher of righteousness, as it says in 2 Peter 2 and verse 5. Noah, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, being a just man, perfect in his generations, who walked with God. He walked with God. He was perfect in his generations, according to Genesis chapter 6. In verse 9, he was the man that was famous for doing all that God commanded. Genesis 6.22 and 7.5. The word perfect, when it says that Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, the Hebrew word there means perfect, not in the sense of sinlessness. Don't, don't get the wrong idea. The Hebrew word means complete or whole, perfect, not in the sense of sinlessness, but of moral integrity, according to the pulpit commentary. He wanted to do the right thing. In, in his, his morality, he was flawless and complete, whole. But he wasn't sinless. That would be a violation of scriptures if all we'd have to do is look back and see that in Genesis 9, 20 through 27, after the flood, Noah went out and planted a vineyard and got drunk, which led to a lot of difficulties with his three sons as we would read in Genesis chapter 9. You know, the world at that time was wicked, doing a lot of evil things, and, and Noah saw what God had done to the world for its wickedness and evil, because out plants a vineyard gets drunk. About Abraham. 
Abraham was as close to God as any of the Old Testament heroes of the faith could possibly get. Did you know that he was God's BFF? He really was, scripture says. He was one of God's BFFs. Did you know that? That's quite an accolade. Jehoshaphat said in 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 7, Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? Abraham was called the friend forever of God. That's, that's quite an accolade. Not many people have that title in the scripture. God himself confirmed it in Isaiah 41 in verse 8 when he said, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. It wasn't just Jehoshaphat that realized that, that Moses, I'm sorry, wasn't just Jehoshaphat who understood that Abraham was God's friend forever, but God himself confirmed it in Isaiah 41.8. And he said, Abraham, my friend. New Testament, turn to me in your Bibles this morning, the book of James. Chapter 2, if you would, please. Look at what James has to say about this. Not only did Jehoshaphat know it about Abraham, not only did God confirm it about Abraham, so did James. James chapter 2, look at verse 21 and following. James writes in James 2, beginning at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Three times, Abraham is confirmed as a friend of God. We see something else here though in this text about Abraham, which indicates how incredibly close to God that he really was, how faithful to God he was. Look in verse 21, same text, James 2, verse 21. He's called Abraham our father. Why was he called that? because of his incredible faith, because of Abraham's incredible faith in God. Staunch, unflinching, so many times, faith in God. Abraham is said to be the father of everybody who truly has a full and saving, obedient faith. He is said to be the father of all the faithful. Turn with me and look at this in Romans 4. Look at, look at his faith. Look why he's called the father of all the faithful. Romans 4 beginning in verse 16. Beautiful story about his faith. Man, you couldn't get much closer to God. We know that without faith it's impossible to please God and Abraham had mounds of it. That's why he's called the father of us all or the father of the faithful. Romans 4 beginning at verse 16. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Abraham's faith was so incredible, he's called the father of all the faithful. 
in the presence of him whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Speaking about Abraham, it goes on in Romans 4.18, talking of him and says, Who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Abraham is our spiritual father in the faith. If we have an obedient faith that does not waver, that knows that God can do whatever God said he was going to do. Father, uh, Abraham is the father of the faithful. But you know what? Still made mistakes. Close as he was to God and as great as his faith was, he still made mistakes. One writer, Herbert Lockyer, wrote, he was subject to failures. His character, like the sun, had its spots. <laughs> one of those spots, one of those blemishes, one of those mistakes was after God promises that he's going to have an heir. What happens, we see back there that, that Sarah gives Abraham her handmaiden, Haggai, I'm sorry, Hagar, I'll get this right, got too many names this morning, okay? Gives him Hagar, he goes in and sleeps with Hagar, she has Ishmael, and if you read through Genesis chapter 16 and 17, you'll find out that most all of the trouble in the Middle East and the, the Jews and those fighting against them came basically from that mistake that Abraham made. He wasn't flawless, for sure. Mr. Lockyer went on to further state the following. Abraham's conduct to Hagar on two occasions in sending her away is painful to remember. Then, his departure from Canaan into Egypt when the famine was on was surely not an act of faith. Then, the falsehood which on two occasions he told with regard to Sarah, his wife, gives us a glimpse into a natural character somewhat cowardly, deceitful, and distrustful. Genesis 12, 10 through 19, and 20, 1 through 13. He tells a half-truth that's very deceptive in his fear in those two passages. Abraham made his mistakes. He wasn't perfect. What about Moses? Moses, that great man of faith mentioned in Hebrews 11, along with Abraham and David and Samson and Samuel, Moses enjoyed an incredibly spiritually intimate relationship with God. He too being called God's friend in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11. He was called a friend of God. Very rare that you see people that were, but we have a couple in Abraham and Moses, a friend of God. But boy, Moses sure made his mistakes. As close as he was to God, he was still neither perfect, flawless, nor did he always do the right thing. Moses made some bad mistakes. He made some bad decisions and he let God down. 
He let other people down too. In Exodus chapters 3 and 4, have you ever considered this? We know that Moses decided to abandon the house of Pharaoh, leaving behind the riches of Egypt, according to Hebrews 11. And we know that, that he fled and, and left and followed the faith of his mother, his birth people, as it were. And it was after about 40 years anyway, a number of decades, even then in Exodus 3 and 4, when God came to Moses, his God came to him. He believed in God. He had, he had followed the ways of the Hebrews for decades. But when God came to him and said, go, Moses, Moses came up with every excuse in the book not to obey God. He went so far in his excuses that the text says that God was angry with Moses. Remember that, Exodus 3 and 4? God was angry with him. How's that possible, the great and mighty Moses? Because Moses was a flawed human being who still made mistakes. He was subject to bad decisions. And sometimes he said and did things, despite his best efforts, that were wrong. In Numbers chapter 12, and I'm just going through these, if you're taking notes, hopefully you are, get a copy of the lesson later. In Numbers 12, Moses made a decision which severely displeased his brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, and more than likely it disappointed God as well when Moses married an Egyptian woman. In Numbers 25, we would see Moses hesitate, and he would fail to act decisively enough himself to the point that Phineas has to step up and do the right thing. Moses didn't. And Phineas steps up, and I, I realize Moses was lamenting and crying and all that, but, but it takes Phineas stepping up to do the right thing and halt the plague that had already claimed 24,000 lives. Of course, in Numbers chapter 20, we see the most infamous of Moses' errors, the most infamous and the very fatal mistake. It was just a mistake that he was so angry and frustrated that he didn't do it God's way, but it was still a mistake that not only cost him from ever entering into the promised land, but his mistake, his error in judgment, his frustration cost his brother Aaron his life too. You ever made a mistake that's cost somebody else their life? Moses did. Close as he was to God, he made a fatal error in judgment that cost him, but it cost his brother his life as well. Think about this. After all the time that Moses had spent with God, despite all the time up on the mountain that, that Moses had spent alone with God, just him and God, and all the other time Moses spent alone with God, listening to God, learning from God, all of that, he still made some big mistakes. He still let people down. Brethren, this is so critical. He still let people down. And he still hurt other people through his failures, despite everything he had going for him with God. Take a, take a look with me in your Bible in Numbers chapter 20, would you please? Think about 
mighty Moses and all of that time with God, serving God, alone with God, hearing from God, learning of God. Yet he made a big mistake. We know that he didn't handle the situation with the rock the way he was supposed to. He struck the rock the second time instead of speaking to it. Look what happens because of that in Numbers 20, beginning at verse 22. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Moses, he's going to die because you refused to honor and obey me the way you should have. God said, take Aaron and Eliezer his son and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments. Put them on Eliezer his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded. They went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, that is his priestly garments, and put them on Eliezer his son, and Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. When the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron for 30 days. I want you to think about the dynamic. You've sinned so greatly that it's costing your brother his life, and you got your brother's son, you got your nephew, and he knows, and so you go up to the top of the mountain. What do you say to the nephew? What do you say to him about it? Your sin caused his death. How does that work in the family from then on? Moses made a terrible mistake. You know why? Because everybody makes mistakes. Everybody. Even Moses. Nobody's perfect. Nobody. Nobody. We could list a lot of others from the Old Testament alone. We could talk about, talk about that great and gifted judge, Samson. In Judges 13 through 16, we don't even have to. I probably, if I looked out, I'd see smiles on faces and glints in eyes. You all know about Samson, right? You want to talk about a guy that was full of mistakes, errors in judgment, bad decisions. Samson's were both epic and legendary. We could speak of Eli. Eli, that great judge and high priest of Israel for a number of years. Or Samuel. But both of them, Eli and Samuel, they made some bad decisions. They made some mistakes when it came to raising their own children. Choices that wound up costing both them and those around them a number of further tragic problems. First Samuel, chapters one through four and chapter eight. They might have been great men of God, but his father's raising their children the right way and turning them into what they needed to be. These men were epic failures. Again, 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 4 and 8. Speaking of Samuel, of course it was Samuel who anointed David king. David, the man after God's own heart, according to Acts 13 and 22. David, who wrote so many of the Psalms, the 23rd Psalm that so many love. 
So many beautiful psalms, so close to God. This young man that, that as, a, as a little boy or, or as a young lad killed Goliath, this, this man of faith, David, the man after God's own heart, you want to talk about, we all know about his epic fail, about his terrible mistake, about his, his awful decision to commit adultery with Bathsheba and then to commit murder by having her husband Uriah killed. And that wound up costing David unfathomable mental anguish and internal family pain and heartache and more lives of both his own children and the nation put together in the years to come than we can count. If we were to go back and read 2 Samuel chapter 11, God tells him, because of your sin, this is what's going to happen. The sword will never depart from your house. And, and we look at his kids and we see with Absalom and Tamar and, and all of these, these struggles and almost losing the kingdom, the, the family is torn apart. The kingdom is not going to stay together. All of it, because it roots back to David's terrible, terrible, awful, fatal, miserable, bad mistake, even mighty David. If we turn to the New Testament, we'd see the same thing. No matter who they are, no matter how long they had walked with the Lord, think about that, walking with Jesus. I mean literally, physically walking with Jesus. No matter how long they had been and walked with the Lord, no matter how much they'd heard him say, no matter how much they had studied and sought to understand what he taught, no matter how hard they sought not to sin and let him down, no matter how much other power or knowledge they had been given or how close to God they were, none of those things mattered. Every last single solitary one of those men made mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect. Let me give you an example of just two. Peter and Paul. We could spend hours. <laughs> we really could. We, I know that you got a trip this afternoon and all that. And I don't want to keep you here till evening service, but we could. We could spend hours talking about Peter's mistakes. <laughs> we could spend hours talking about his bad decisions prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. His mistakes and all of that are well documented, but you know what? Even years after Peter preached that gospel sermon in Acts 2, and after reaching out and preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans, the non-Jews, in Acts 8, or half-Jews, and after he had a dream from God about accepting the Gentiles, and he goes and he preaches in Cornelius' house in Acts 10, and he sees that the Gentiles are welcome, even after all of that. Guess what? Guess what? We see Peter, who's preached to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, who's preached to the Samaritans, mixed race, Jew and Gentile. And even after going to Cornelius' house, and that's so important, he knew and he, and he saw the miraculous gift to send on Cornelius and his household. And he understood as he goes back in Acts chapter 11 and he, he tells the church in Jerusalem what happened. He comes to understand, hey, the Jews and the Gentiles, it's all one body in Christ. They're, we're all acceptable. What do we see him doing in Galatia chapter 2, verses 11 through 13? 
drawing back with the Jews and no longer eating with the Gentiles, going back to his roots, making a bad mistake. His mistake was so bad there that the Apostle Paul says, I had to correct him in front of the whole assembly, again, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Peter, what's wrong with you? What about Paul? The Apostle Paul could legitimately, not like people today, the Apostle Paul could legitimately speak in tongues. He could do miracles. He, check this out, the Apostle Paul could even raise the dead. Wouldn't it be wonderful today if we could go down to some of the sick wards in Tulsa and all that, and these babies that are dying of cancer, and we could, we could just lay a hand on them and heal them. Wouldn't that be something? And we can't. Those gifts are gone. That's a different study. But not only could, could Paul do that sort of thing, he could raise the legitimately dead. First Corinthians, let me give you a list. 1 Corinthians 14, 18. Acts 19, 11 and 12. In Acts 20, 7 through 12, you see that he could do all of these things. But you know what? Even he, with all that power and all that knowledge, all that understanding, he who was considered the premier apostle by many, the Apostle Paul, who wrote so much of our New Testament, many of the books we study out of now, you know what? He still struggled with sin. He still struggled to do the right thing. He still wanted to do the right thing, but despite his best efforts, he still failed at times. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 24. He still got so upset. Sometimes we talk about church issues. He still got so upset with a couple of his co-workers in the kingdom that he couldn't even work with them anymore. Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. And so as we look at all that, we see this. Whether we're talking about Noah, a just man who walked with God and did according to all that God commanded him, or whether we're talking about Abraham, the father of the faithful and the friend of God, or whether we're talking about Moses, that great forerunner of Christ, whom God talked to face to face, the scripture says, as a man talks to his friend, or whether we talk about Samson or Eli or Samuel or King David, the man after God's own heart, or the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul, we see that no matter who they were, no matter how long they had been with and walked with the Lord, no matter how many years they had studied or tried to understood what he taught, no matter how hard they tried not to sin and let him down or how close to God they were, every last one of them made mistakes. They were not perfect and they often did things they shouldn't have said or done. And they therefore needed God's grace and, and the grace of one another. The grace of one another. What's that got to do with us? Why all this this morning? What's that got to do with us? Everything, and then some. Brethren, I think sometimes that we have superhuman expectations of one another. I think that sometimes we have very unrealistic expectations, especially those who have been Christians for decades.
We look at them and we're stunned, we're shocked, when maybe one day they just say something that's not what I would have expected. Or they make a decision and I look at it and I say, what? I think sometimes we have expectations that are unrealistic. They are superhuman of our brethren just because they've been Christians a long time. We think they're always going to say and do exactly what we believe to be the right thing in all circumstances, and brethren, they're not. They're not going to do it. They can't. Even the best of people, as we've covered, even those that walk closest with God, sometimes messed up, didn't they? Do I have to go back through the list? Noah, Moses, Abraham, go through the list. Peter, Paul, they still struggled. We still live in a fallen world. They were, and I'm not okay in sin, and I'm not saying it's okay to sin, because it ain't. But sometimes they messed up. They didn't want to, but they did. Now, as I said, surely they didn't want to, and it bothered them immensely when they messed up. And they tried not to, but it's a losing battle because they're only human. Nobody's perfect and everybody makes mistakes. What that got to, what's that got to do with us? Don't just take the first of this, take the whole thing. Let me get a breath. Your elders are not perfect. Your preachers are not perfect. Neither are anybody else's. Neither are your deacons, your Bible class teachers, neither are any of the other members of this congregation or the Lord's Church worldwide. Not a one of us is perfect. No, not one. Does not matter how close to God they are or how much closer they want to be and become, they're not going to be perfect in every situation in this lifetime. It can't happen. Do we understand that? Do we really understand that? Sometimes, despite their best efforts, people are going to make mistakes. They're going to say and do things that aren't right. At times, despite their most earnest efforts, to the contrary, and that's what we've got to understand is that they're trying. This is not going to come to a shock to any of you that have been married more than five minutes. But your spouse ain't perfect, much as they want to be. Your kids aren't perfect either, and neither are their parents. Everybody makes mistakes. So what do we do with that? And I apologize to your grandparents momentarily for telling you your grandchildren aren't perfect, but really, I mean, I got one as close as she can be right now, you know, anyway. <laughs> What do we do with that? What do we do with this whole thing? We understand this. What sets true Christians and Christ's followers apart from everybody else on the planet is not do they make mistakes, because everybody does, even Christians. What sets God's people apart from everybody else on the planet is how we handle it. And you know how we handle it when our brethren make mistakes? Let me tell you, this is what sets us apart. We realize that we're all in the same boat, that we are all guilty of doing the same thing, that we are all sinners ourselves, ourselves saved only by the grace of God. We handle it differently than the world handles it. We handle it by doing the following. Number one, 
we forgive as we have been forgiven. Look with me in your Bibles in Ephesians 4. We forgive as we have been forgiven, Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verses 29 through chapter 5 and verse 2. Four twenty-nine of Ephesians. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. But wait a minute, Lord, you don't understand what that person said to me. You know, Jesus could look back at us and say, do you remember the nails that they put right there? I know what it's like to take a beating at the hands of people. And as I forgave you, so must you forgive one another. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, chapter 5 and verse 1, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for sweet-smelling aroma. Number two, what sets us apart is not do we sin and make mistakes. What sets us apart is how we handle it when other Christians make mistakes. Number two, we love them just as God loves us, even though we're not perfect. 1 John 3, 11 through 4, 11, because love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4 in verse 8. Number three, we love them without hypocrisy. We love them fully, sincerely, and continually serving and putting the Lord and those who sin against us ahead of ourselves. Wish I had time to read these texts, but I don't. Romans 12, 9 through 21. Philippians 2, 1 through 16. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. And also 1 Peter 2, 19 through 24. How is it possible to do that? Lord, how do we do it? How can we possibly do that? One. Two, two simple things. Simple to see. Number one, we must begin by having what I have sought to highlight the need for with this whole lesson up to this point, and that's it. Realistic expectations. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and they're probably going to again. They're going to make mistakes no matter how godly, mature, or devoted they either are, may seem, or desire to be because nobody's perfect. Even the most God-fearing servants in the Bible still made mistakes. Doesn't mean they're not trying. Are you trying to do the right thing all the time? I'm trying, but sometimes I don't get it right. Do you try? Sometimes you mess it up, don't you? The person sitting behind you, in front of you, beside you is no different than you are. They're trying too. Sometimes they ain't gonna do the right thing. Sometimes they're gonna say something they shouldn't say. Sometimes they're gonna make a mistake. Everybody does. That's number one. Number two, which kind of sets the stage for that, 
We must be willing to see, accept, and forgive others in the same light as God has chosen to see, accept, and forgive us. We must be willing to see and accept and forgive others the same way God has chosen to see, accept, and forgive us. When God looks at you, if you're Christian, you're under the blood, what does he see? Does he see your errors or does he see Jesus' blood? If you're under the blood, he sees perfection, doesn't he? Isn't that why we're in Christ? So if somebody else is in Christ, how should we look at them? Not seeing their sins the way we want God not to see ours. Look at me at Psalm 103. We, if we're going to look at people as God looks at us, the way we want God to look at us, this is the key. Psalm 103, look at how God looks at us and that other person. Psalm 103, starting at verse 8, how does God look at us? Like this. And so we must look at others the same way. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. That's the way we need to be with other people. We need to be merciful, gracious, slow to anger. We must abound in mercy, not always striving with people and being angry. We must not deal with people, verse 10, like God hasn't with us. We must not deal with people according to their sins, not punish them according to their iniquities. They're going to mess up, they're going to hurt us, but it's not up to us to punish them. For as the heavens are high above the earth, verse 11, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Listen, if that brother or sister fears God, you know they're trying, but they mess up. And have mercy for them that is as, high, that is as big as space itself. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from, transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Listen, did God know before you became a Christian, you're still going to make mistakes once you became a Christian? Did God know that? Well, what did God do about that? God pities you. He understands this weak, fallen, horrible world that we're in, and he forgave us anyway, and, and his mercy is so great that when he looks at us, he sees a forgiven person, not all of their errors. Again, love covers a multitude of sins. What's that mean to us? That means that's the way we've got to look at each other. We've got to see each other as God does. As a, as a person who's covered by the blood, who's trying, even though they're going to mess up again, And brethren, that'll make all the difference in the world. Romans chapter 15. Look what it says. And then we will close. Romans 15. We must learn to see others as God sees us. We must see them as God sees them. Those who are Christians who are trying, despite their mistakes, that they're going to make Romans 15, 1, watch what it says. We who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Sometimes they're going to mess up. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. That's why we looked at all this stuff that was written before, to see how this works. Now may the God of patience 
and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ. May we look at one another, may we be like-minded toward one another the same way Jesus is. What does Jesus see when he looks at a saved Christian? What does Jesus see? He sees a, a person who's been covered by the blood who's still going to make some mistakes. Why do you think it says in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to continually cleanse our sins? Why do you think that's there? Because once we're under the blood, we're still going to mess up. So's the person who messed up with you the last time. They're not perfect either. They're not. They can't be. That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7 of Romans 15, therefore, and we know what the therefore is there for from class this morning. Receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Receive one another as Christ received us. Did Christ take you in when you were broken, when you were hurting, when you had made mistakes, when you'd said and done things you shouldn't have said and done to other people? Did, God, did Christ take you in? Receive one another, just as Christ Jesus received you. Don't think that just because somebody's been a Christian for 30 years that they're never going to make a mistake. Whatever, whether you're right-handed or left-handed, take your prominent hand. You don't have to raise it. I'm going to ask everybody to do this that has a hand. And do this. Like you got a softball or a grapefruit in your hand. Just do this. Everybody, please, humor me. And look at your hand for a minute. Just look at it. Look at your hand, not mine. And then think about this. I want you to picture for a minute the last brother or sister that really said something or did something to hurt you. Still got your hand like this, and, 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 and there they are. I want you to picture those that hurled the worst thing at you lately that they could have. And I want you to think of everybody else has kind of jumped on the bandwagon against this person. They've chimed in with similar stories and you're in this, this group of people and they're, they're looking at this one person who really nailed you pretty good last. And in your hand, you have a rock. And I'm reminded of the story of Jesus in John 8, 1 through 11 because we don't hurl rocks at people today. We can be arrested for that. But can we hurl words? Can we hurl sarcasm? Can we hurl gossip and slander at somebody? Picture that instead of a rock. And we got the opportunity. Everybody else is piling on, and there they are, and I got them in my sights that hurt me last. There they are. Just like the woman who's caught in the act of adultery, and she's down there, and Jesus kneels down to write on the ground. They keep saying, Lord, what are we going to do with her? Jesus rose up and he said, according to John 8, 7 through 11, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. If you don't have any sin at all, you have a right to get after the person who sinned against you. 
And again, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground, and then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. They looked inside and they said, you know what, I've messed up too. I got no right to be throwing this. Whatever it is I'm throwing, I've, been, I've made mistakes too, and, and I didn't mean to, and, and I, I, I got no right to hurl this. And they dropped their rocks and they walked away, the first, the first of them being the oldest, because I don't know if it's because the older people had more realistic sense of their own sin or if they just had committed so many more sins because they'd lived so much longer, but they knew their mistakes. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to a woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Jesus didn't okay her sin. It's not okay. Sin is not okay. But you know what? She's the only one in that story that got to spend alone time with Jesus. Have you ever thought of that? Those other guys had to realize, before you throw whatever it is you're throwing, you need to stop and think about the fact that, you know what, you've made your mistakes too. And so, all this morning, there's, no, there's, nothing, there's nothing that brought this on. Don't, don't be sitting home thinking, wonder what brought that on. <laughs> it's just a sermon that's been on my mind, nothing in particular. We just need to read people's hearts sometimes instead of their actions, because sometimes they're going to make mistakes. Understand that the person beside you is just dust. They're just a sinner saved by grace. They know better than Abraham, Moses, Peter, Paul, or anybody else. Look at them like God does. Accept them where they are, because you make mistakes too, so do I. Hey look, the guy standing in front of you knows what mistakes are, okay? That's what makes a strong congregation and a strong body. What happens if you, had a, if you have a body and you have an implant and the rest of the body rejects it? You know what happens, right? We're all body parts that need to function together, and if we're going to function together, sometimes we're going to mess up, and so is the person beside us. This morning, if you're here, and you understand that you have sinned, and you've never had those sins forgiven, the Bible tells us that we have our sins forgiven when we hear the gospel and we believe the gospel, we're willing to confess Jesus as Lord, we're willing to repent, that is, turn our lives back to God and say, you know what, I've messed this whole thing up. We, we return to God, we, can, we repent, and the Bible says at that point, we have to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, for no other reason. God wants to wash that ugliness away. There's nothing in the water, but when we obey God, God said, if you get in a tank of water and you'll be immersed, I'll wash away your sins. It's that simple. Because Jesus already paid the price. If you would be baptized this morning for the forgiveness of your sins, if you would study it further, we'd love to study with you, but if you would do that, in just a moment, you can make your way to the front and we will help with that. Number two, if you're somebody who's already been forgiven of your sins through baptism, but there's something you need to make right with somebody. You can ask for the prayers of the church or you can do it right after church, whatever you need to do to respond. But understand this, if we work in this congregation together for another 20 years or 30 years or how many ever, and I mean all of us, not just me with you, all of us, that person that you love and respect is probably going to say something to you that's going to hurt your feelings because nobody's perfect. Nobody. Expect that. Understand that. 
and love them like Jesus did. If you need anything this morning, please come to the front as we stand and sing.